Well, I want to start this morning with a, with a question, and it's a, it's a question that every single human being, including many Christians, and maybe even most Christians, wrestle with at some point or another. And it's the question of, like, how do I know? Like, how do I really know? How do I really know what's, what's real? How do I really know if there really is a God? How do I know if there's really a heaven? How do I know if there's a resurrection? How do I know where I really came from or where I'm going? That question of how do I know, you know, ultimate reality, how do I know, is, is something that all of us at some level struggle with in our faith from time to time. And, and uh, people who don't have a Christian faith, I think, if they were to be honest, they struggle with that question too. I just, I, I don't, don't really know for sure. Well, a lot of people, in trying to answer that question, how do I know ultimate reality? If there's a God, and if there is a God, how does it end, and how did it begin? Um, a lot of people tend to work towards an answer that pieces together like observations and inquiries and intuition from this life. That is to say, if you can think of, um, like, we live in the confines of, of this world, um, in the created material universe, and in to answer the question, how do I know, we often piece together um, what we see around us, maybe scientific inquiry, and try and come up with answers about what's ultimate. That to me is a little bit like um, a fish in a glass fishbowl with a top on it, trying to figure out his re the reality of what stands outside his fishbowl. Now that might be a, a stretch, but work with me on this for a second, okay? If you could imagine yourself as a fish for just a moment in a fishbowl. The fish is all you've ever known. You know, one of those, maybe one of those little goldfish that you win at a fair, that you bring home when you put in a fishbowl, dies three years later and your kids cry for three weeks. You know, one of those kind. You can imagine yourself as a, as a fish. And I know, um, see, during my uh, slices of, uh, of bored, boredom time, you know, I tend to go through the mental exercises of actually meditating on what would a fish think about from the fishbowl perspective. Imagine yourself a fish. Use a little imagination here. And uh, trying to figure out, like, what is life outside the fishbowl like? Let's just say the fish has the ability to think, and it's you, and you're swimming, and you're going to use all the sensory perceptions and your thoughts to try and figure out what life is like outside the fishbowl, that is outside your confines. Let's use your sense of smell. Now, we know fish have sense of smell because they like the nastiest stuff, right? Salmon eggs, power bait, rotting anchovy meat, uh, chicken liver. Like, we know they smell. But they can't use that sense outside the fishbowl. They can only smell what's on the inside and on the outside. So that's just smell. What about, what about um, hearing? I would guess that fish have the ability to hear, but by the time the sound waves pass through the water and, the, of course, the glass before that, it's, it's going to be garbled and it's going to be nonsensical. So the, the ability to hear is completely muffled. Sight. The fish is looking outside. Have you ever gone to the bottom or bottom of a pool and tried to make heads or tails out of what's outside? It's like, you can't make sense of things. You can't see a bird. And whatever's coming through, in terms of light, it's always going to be distorted. So whatever the fish sees through the water and through the glass is going to be distorted. Reality. I mean, can you imagine a fish trying to see a human being having a cup of coffee and trying to figure out what it is? What is that blobby thing that moves, opens something, and keeps lifting something to its mouth up to the sphere on top of the blob? 
when, of course, the fish can't even figure out what coffee is or what a cup is or what a human being is or even what air is. It's like, so even from, from, a, from a, the sense of sight, it's, it's completely distorted. Can't make heads or tails of what's outside. Or how about touch? You know, the fish are those little fins, you know. I mean, it can touch the glass. It can touch the rocks or little ornaments or whatever's inside the fishbowl. But it has no capacity. Remember, there's a top on it. It can't jump out to touch the, the texture of a carpet or to feel the texture of a wall. That is to say, this little fish is confined to the world in which it lives with no true capacity to understand the world outside the fishbowl. Well, the fishbowl is an analogy for you and I. We are, we are confined to the created world that we live in. And when asking the questions about ultimate reality, we're, stand, we're talking about something that stands outside of the confines of our physical existence. And to try and come up with solid conclusions about what's out there based upon what's in here doesn't work. That is to say, we're kind of reduced to educated guesswork and speculation. And, and that's, that's what you have to do if you're just going to use the material of this world to try and answer the question about ultimate reality. Right? Now, we know as Christians, based upon Romans 1, we would argue that God has so imprinted himself on this world, what's in our fishbowl of existence, that we should, if our minds were working correctly, we should be able to discern that there is a God, he is powerful, and he created the universe. But our thinking has been so damaged that it's not um, obvious to us as it would be before the fall. Which means we need someone from the outside, if we're really going to understand and, and, uh, and answer the question, how, 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 should I, how can I know what's on the outside? What came before? What came after? Is there a God? Is there life after? Um, then someone from the outside has to speak in. And that was the role of the Hebrew prophets in the Old Testament. Like God sent these messages inside our fishbowl, inside the material universe, to talk about ultimate reality. There is a God. You were created in the image of God out of nothing. Um, he is a God who speaks, a God who loves, a God who redeems. He has a name. His name is Yahweh. All of those were messages that God inserted from the outside in into the fishbowl by way of the Hebrew prophets. But here's the thing. The prophets God chose, every single one of them from Moses all the way to Malachi, Every one of them was a sinner like you and me. That's one thing. And every one of them grew up and lived in the fishbowl. Not one of them comes from the outside. You see? They are, without the messages coming in from the outside, they are just as confused as we would be. The book of Hebrews opens this way, and I'm just touching on this for a second. It's like, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Sent messages into fishbowl dwellers to communicate. But something's going to happen that's going to alter everything. Because he goes on to say that on Advent, that is the appearing or the coming of Jesus, Emmanuel... Um, he's spoken to us by his son. 
Now, the distance between verse 1 of how God used to communicate by sending messages into the fishbowl to people who are sinful people like you and me, and now how he he speaks through his own son, the distance between verse 1 and 2 is infinite. That is to say, they spoke in pieces, the Hebrew prophets. They spoke secondhand. They weren't on the outside where they could see firsthand who God is. Not even Moses, if you remember. Secondhand, which is, explains why they didn't always understand everything they said. Um, they spoke things, and some of it they understood. Others were mysteries that later needed to be revealed. But they just had pieces, if you will, of the outside. Secondhand information. With the coming of Jesus, that all changes. We get firsthand information. And that leads me to, to John. And my, my, this, I wanted to tell you where I'm going to go. This first part is all about Jesus. The second part is how we should respond to what I'm going to say about Jesus, okay? And I have one goal in this first part. I simply want you to understand and feel and believe that Jesus is in a category all by himself when it comes to being the prophet. He's not one amongst, or higher amongst equals. He's not just the end of the train. He stands in a category all by himself, and I'm going to show you why. Three steps. John 1, 1 through 3, John 14, and then we're going to end at John 1:18. So the first part. When the Gospel of John opens with the grand introduction of who Jesus is, and if you were to read this for the first time with a Jewish mind, you would be um, overwhelmed by the fact that John begins his Gospel the same way Genesis begins. In the beginning. In the beginning. Before there was ever an earth, before there was a heaven, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word, communication, message, information. That's what a prophet does. He conveys the Word. He conveys the message. And here he's saying and introducing Jesus, in the beginning was the message. Before there was ever a creation, before there was a fishbowl, the divine message was there. A declaration, a revelation of who God was. In introducing Jesus this way, he is not only identifying Jesus as the prophet, the one who is the word, he's also identifying him as divine. There's no mistake. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. A truth that will be uh, picked up and repeated over and over and over again in the Gospel of John. There's no question. He's introducing Jesus as he is the eternal divine message. That's what he is. But I love, and this plays into why he's such a different prophet than any, anyone who has come before him. He asserts that it's by this divine word, Christ himself, the message, that everything was created, which is important. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Three times. He's like, made, made, made. Just so those of us who are really dense will get the idea. It's the word that made. And he makes sure to qualify it. All things. 
all-inclusive, everything from the macro to the micro, everything from galaxies all the way down to subatomic particles. And just in case we didn't get all things, he says not anything, which means not a single thing was made apart from Christ, the Word. Let's just think about that for a second. That means that, you know, the entire entire creation, or let's just call it the fishbowl, fishbowl of creation. If he created everything from macro to micro, from galaxies down to molecules, then he has comprehensive, personal, intimate knowledge of everything in the universe. There is no prophet in all of human history who knows everything about everything in the fishbowl. He knows about you, he knows about your heart, he knows about your past, he knows about your future. That's how comprehensive the knowledge of the word is who created all things. Not one thing was made apart from him. That already puts him in a category all by himself. Moses knew a lot of stuff, but even he said, these things are too marvelous for me to understand. Jesus, he is introduced as the one who created all things, which means he has a comprehensive, exhaustive knowledge of everything from macro to micro because he designed it. Like I said, that puts him in a category all by himself. Step two, verse 14. This is the decisive entry into the fishbowl, into creation. It says, and the word, the same one that was in the beginning, the eternal one, the one that created all things, became flesh. That is, he became human and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, full of grace and truth. So if God's message, divine, eternal message that created everything, actually, like, comes to live in, from the outside, into our existence, into the fishbowl, into the universe, into our world. No other prophet has ever seen the outside, that which is ultimately real, God himself, and then inserted himself into human history as one of us with hands and feet and eyes and a mouth to speak and to hear and to touch and relate and to love and to heal. That makes him a prophet like no other. He came from the outside. He's only one. You remember all the Hebrew prophets? They got a message, indirect, secondhand. Jesus had firsthand access, which brings us to the third step. That's verse 18, the last step I'm going to look at in John. He writes this, and this to me is the culmination of this introduction. He says, no one has ever seen God, semicolon. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Now, I want you to use your grammatical mind for a second and just take note of where the semicolon is and the grammar that's used. It's a highly significant statement. He makes a strong negative assertion at the very beginning of verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God. He doesn't say no one has seen God. He says, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever had direct access to God's face. No one None of the Hebrew prophets had direct access to God's face, not even Moses, right? That's that's the assertion. No one comes with firsthand information like, wow, this is what God's like firsthand. But then there's this 
semicolon, kind of like a moderate pause that goes on to state another thought that in this case introduces the only singular exception to the first negative assertion. The only God, he goes on to say, who is at the Father's side. Now that statement, who is at the Father's side, is an identification. So who he's talking about, the only God is the one who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So what he's saying here, he's saying that God, who exists at the right hand of God, who is that? That's Jesus. All throughout the New Testament. Undeniable. A reassertion of his divinity. He stands with God at his right hand. He has made him known. God the Son. Fully knows God the Father. It's just, again, let's stop. There is only one person, not only that has seen God firsthand, but has the capacity in himself to know all that God is in all of his infinite, mighty glory, fully, completely, exhaustively, comprehensively. Just There's only one who can fully comprehend all that God is, and that's God himself, God's son. And he's the one who came down and inserted himself into our creation, into the fishbowl to say, I've seen him firsthand, I know him, every bit of him. That puts him in a category all by himself. You know what? You, a lot of you have traveled and you know what it's like to see pictures of places you want to go or people say, hey, you should go to Yosemite. It's an amazing place. And, and you know, it, some places people describe as the most amazing place and you get there and you're like, that's it. <laughs> right? Yosemite is not one of those places, by the way. But, uh, you know, for years and years and years, I had heard about this place called Petra in the small country of Jordan over in the Middle East. And people have told me, you got to go there. It's got like bucket lists. That's, it's, just like, it's like going to Egypt and seeing the pyramids. you just you got to see it. And, uh, you know, I'd seen pictures of it. I've seen pictures of the library, you know, this, this building that's carved out of the rock. And um, I, I love Indiana Jones and, you know, the Last Crusade. And they're riding their horses, you know. And the, it, the crack in the earth, you know, it looks like God took a knife and, like, drilled it down deep and just kind of, like, created this really thin, like, scar in the earth. And I'd seen pictures of that, and I saw the movie, and I thought, well, that's kind of a cool place, Petra. Um, well, all of the information that I got was secondhand. Indiana Jones, pictures, secondhand, right? And I got there, and I wondered, is this place really going to live up to its, its uh, description? And me and my family, we went... Um, started off the little journey, and as we made ourselves deeper and deeper into this crevasse, at points there was like 200 feet high walls, just, and you're like, barely see the sky, like a slit of the sky. And I'm like, I hadn't even gotten to the city yet. It's just like, this is amazing, absolutely amazing. Like, and then you make your way through this little passage, and our, our tour guide pulled a fast one on us. He says, hey, I want everybody to look at the other direction, like back where you had come from, because you can feel this like gravitational pull of the wall. And we're all facing this way going, what is this? And he says, okay, keep walking, keep walking. He goes, now I want you to turn around. And what he had done is he had distracted us by the past so that by the time we backed up enough, we turn around and there was the, the library carved out of rock. He's like, oh, wow, this is amazing, right? But what I didn't know based upon secondhand information, was 
that it, it opens up into this like valley with all kinds of houses that are carved into the rock and this huge old city. And then we made our way up to a, a monastery carved out of the rock. And I was just like, it's like it's, it's the, the description is so underplayed, underdescribed the, the, the amazing sight of it all. I was completely overwhelmed. Still to this day, one of my favorite places. And I tell people, bucket list, you got to go to Petra. That's the difference between secondhand and firsthand. And what this tells us is that Jesus, firsthand, knows all of the vast, infinite glory of who God is, unlike anybody else. And he came to us. He came to us to reveal who God is. That puts him in a category all by himself. Now, let me just put these two things together. If he created all things, that means he has a comprehensive knowledge of everything in the fishbowl. And because... He is the only God who has revealed God. That means he has exhaustive, comprehensive, intimate knowledge of everything outside of the fishbowl. Like I said, he's not just a prophet. Like he is capital T-H-E, underlined, bold, and with highlighter over the top. The prophet. And what's interesting about Jesus is he's not just a bearer of a message. He is that. He himself is the message, right? Like in the beginning was the word. And he says at different points, I am the way, I am the truth. I'm not um, just a means to the truth or I'm not just a, a messenger of truth. No, I, I am the truth. And so if you really want to see who God is in, in, the, in the fullest sense of knowing him, well, then you have to look at the life of Jesus because that's God in the flesh, that's what he tries to convince his disciples of over and over again when they're like, hey, can you show us the Father? And he's like, hello, right here. I've been walking with you for a while. You've seen my miracles. You've seen how I've treated people who were blind and begging. And you've seen my mercy. That's the Father. You've seen how I've treated self-righteous blind Pharisees. I have an opposition to human pride, and I have pronounced seven woes upon them. That's how I respond. That's how God the Father responds to human pride. You want to know how, how God responds to broken, diseased vessels? Well, you've seen me heal the woman. You've seen me touch the woman at the well and heal her spirit. This is all of the, what Jesus does in his actions and attitudes and his miracles. These are all expressions of God in living flesh. So we ought to be studying, you know, as you're reading the Gospels going, that's what God's like right there. I am the message, he says. You want to know what, how God feels about human depravity and sin? Well, let's just take you to the cross where I laid down my life to take your place. Where the just... Punishment that I deserved, that Dan Decker deserved, was paid for by God the Son. And there you see God's justice and at the same time God's love come together in such a way to, to bring us forgiveness and, and inclusion into God's family. You want to see the power of God towards people who don't deserve it? Go to my resurrection, Jesus would say. And there you will see God's victory over death and over sin and the promise of eternal life, future. His whole life was a message. 
And we're supposed to see it. He was the embodiment of God's truth. But he was also a proclaimer with his words. If we just had Jesus' actions, but no words from him. Imagine Jesus being a mime. Heals people, but doesn't say a word. You know, casts out demons, but doesn't say a word. Goes to the cross, doesn't say a word. Rises, doesn't say a word. We would be left in confusion as to exactly who he was and what he was doing. Unless we have verbal proclamation that this blood is the blood of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the many. We wouldn't understand the nature or the reality of the cross. That, that was his, the Last Supper, what he said, right? His words and his life go together um, in a way that I think God intended the message to be communicated. Life and lips, works and words, they all proclaim who God is. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But what I want you to, again, singular point here, and then I'm going to go on and tell you what I think we should do with this, is Jesus is in a category all by himself. There is no prophet higher. There is no more the prophet who has more full knowledge, which is why we as Christians believe that in terms of new revelation, that was done when Jesus came. Done. You can't get a fuller picture. And any prophet that would come afterwards that would, that would contradict would say, wait, wait a second. We believe that Jesus is the word made flesh. He is the full revelation of who God is. So anything that would contradict that, done. So, how are we supposed to take this in? I, ho- I hope at one level you, you understand this. Because until you lock this into your head, it's hard to go on to the next point or part. Like, if you believe that this is what the scripture says, this is what John teaches... Well, then the very first thing we're to do with it is actually we're supposed to believe it. Right? We're, we're, we're supposed to believe it. And we use, oh, use that word so often in the, in, the, uh, in the church and with each other that it, it kind of loses its power. But the whole purpose, John wrote his gospel, he sums up in chapter 20, verse 31, when he says, but these things are written, including introducing him as the word made flesh, so that you may believe with the heart. Every single person, every single human alive believes something. That is, every single human life that that can think is driven by a fundamental belief about life. Everyone has them. And if you say, wait, no, I'm an atheist, I don't believe. It's like, well, no, you do believe in something. You believe in the absence of God. (laughs) If you you were to put um, Stephen Hawking, you know the late Stephen Hawking, with a brilliant mind. And you were to press him to the wall and go, can you please, like, can you tell me, how can you really explain how the entire universe came out of a singularity you can't even see? And then if it really did, like, what came before that? Eventually, you would push him back to a place where he's like, well, there are certain assumptions we have adopted. And one of those assumptions is that God is not part of the equation. If God is not part of the equation of math, that is, you, you, you try and structure your mathematic equation on the absence of God, well, you've made an assumption right there that God does not exist, and therefore your math is going to be completely different. However, if the assumption, and this is what a Christian scientist would do, the assumption that God does exist and everything exists in an ordered way because he supports it by his providential working, 
Well, now we do science with the, with the assumption that God does exist. Well, now the math's going to change completely too. Both are rooted in assumptions of faith, and you can't get away from it. You just simply can't. Anybody that tells you that faith and science are opposed to each other is simply a false dichotomy. Every single person you press down deep enough, everybody stands on faith. The question is, who are you going to believe? So you could say, well, you know, I think... I shouldn't bring up Stephen Hawking so much, but I just, I find Stephen Hawking really, really smart. You know, it's, I'm compelled to believe. Okay. You believe his voice. But you're still believing the voice of a fish in the fishbowl, trying to piece together an answer based upon what's inside with no access to what's outside. Whereas a Christian would say, or should say, I have come to a simple faith in the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the Word of God, the Prophet of God. And I trust him because he knows everything on the outside and everything on the inside. Belief. We have a false notion that belief is simply saying something is true. A belief is not simply saying something that's true. It is a compelling conviction of life that drives you to make different choices and you know, if you believe actually in gravity, well, then it keeps you from stepping out over a cliff because that belief motivates your choices. And like I said, that belief, and for the Christian, that belief should expand over life. It might start as a mustard seed, but it should expand over life as you begin to take in this word and listen to the prophet who is Christ. It changes the way you see yourself. Like, who do you listen to? I mean, to me, the most important struggle of our time, question of our time, is whose authority do you submit to? If you choose Jesus, everything else tends to fall in line because then you believe what he says. But we often believe other voices, cultural voices, um, that say, hey, you know what? You have the right to kind of tailor make your own religion. So you can take a little bit of Jesus, you can take a little bit of Krishna, you can take a little bit of Islam, you can kind of blend it together and put some Tom Cruise in there too, and make it into kind of your own thing, right? Hey, he's a missionary for his, his, uh, his religion, that's just the way it is, that's, he would say the same thing. But then you kind of concoct your own thing, it's like, wait a second, now you've become your own authority, and you've tailor-made your own Religion based upon what you judge to be the best. Whereas Jesus says, and he's introduced as, I am the word. Like, I have all knowledge outside, all knowledge inside. In other words, my word stands. And that's, that's the Christian belief. And we can't do the blending thing because this truth doesn't allow us to do that. Or maybe it's a voice that's closer to home that you've allowed to be authoritative in your life. Uh, the, the word of, a, of an angry, selfish father who never praised you and always berated you, and as a result, you suffer miserably from insecurity, and you feel worthless. And the voice of Jesus comes in and saying, will you trust me that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and that while you were still dead in your trespasses and sins, I loved you, and I came not only to show you who God is, but to make it possible for you to one day in Revelation 22 see his face like I see it. That's a completely different voice. 
and it, 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 believing that voice of Christ, the voice of the Father through the Son to us, that you were once alienated and strangers and now you're my family because you've chosen to believe in my Son, that breaks those old lies that oftentimes confine and cripple and paralyze our heart because of voices we believe from the past. What voice do you believe? That is the question in your life and mine. What voice do you believe? Because in believing him, you find life. And not just life now, but life everlasting. And the second piece of this, and this is contextualized for Christmas. First, we must believe it. But then we have a responsibility to speak it, to spread it. It's amazing how Jesus, when he left, and he's coming back, he left the ministry of word in the hands of his followers. That is, the same gospel, he said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, like is the word, the word, even so I'm sending you. That our lives are to preach a truth. And that truth is to be a combination of how we live and what we speak. I told you they were meant to be together, how you live and what you speak. That's how Jesus came. He is the truth, but he's also the conveyor of the truth. In a sense, and it's a far lower sense, um, we're to preach with our lives, how we live, how we love, how we treat our wives, how we treat our husbands, how we treat our employees, um, whether we lie, whether we tell the truth. Um, Because Jesus taught us that, you know, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In some way, our lives, how we live, our choices we make, and how we conduct our day-to-day living is supposed to preach. It's supposed to say to the world that there's something different. There's a different center of, of conviction about this person. It's to preach. The word of Christ is to dwell in us richly, which means it lives in us. So it's it, it ought to create a Christ-like aroma of life that people smell and go, that smells entirely different than this over here. Because the Spirit of God lives in us. That part is just one piece. And that's, in many respects, the easier piece. Because if Christians act like Christians, that is, we act like Jesus acted and love God and love our neighbors as ourselves... People will like us. They will want us to be part of their organization because he's a good person or she's a good person and he treats people well and he's honest and has integrity. It's like people applaud people who live like Christians. But as soon as the mouth opens and as soon as there's any witness to the prophet Jesus... Then all of a sudden it's like you just contracted the worst case of Ebola ever. And nobody wants to be around you. But part of the ministry of the word is to actually confess and speak. To do so sensitively and tactfully and spirit-led, yes, but it must be spoken. There is this quote that I hear all the time and it drives me absolutely nuts. It has been falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. And the first part of it, I like, I love. The last part of it, I hate. I heard it two weeks ago, and everything in me just wanted to say something, but I was trying to be tactful. And it's like the first part is like, preach the gospel always. Right? 
Like, yeah, that's awesome. If Christians would actually preach the gospel always, well, it'd be awesome. And then the next part, and if necessary, use words. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's, there has to be good news is essentially news. It's a message. That Greek word actually means good message. It is a spoken message, and it has the power to raise the dead to life. It has the power to, re, to raise the dead soul to life to actually believe in the Son. So it must be spoken. And that's where the fear comes in, fear of being rejected by your friends, fear of being thought less of because now you're one of those religious people that believe in Jesus as the prophet. May, may I dare say, many of us live with way too much fear. I think you should build organic relationships with people, with your friends and with your neighbors, and you should look for and pray for and be intentional about finding ways to verbally testify to your faith, even if it's indirectly through your own story. Like, I was lost, I was in sin, and Jesus revealed himself to me that he paid for my sin, and you're making it all about you, so you're not saying, hey, by the way, you're a sinner, and Jesus died for your sin. And, it, you know, it, that's an indirect way of testifying. It's still testifying. And I was thinking this Christmas, you know, I don't, we, 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 the church can't live in fear. You need to live it. And you should want to grow in your living of it. But there has to be a place with us where we're not afraid to speak it to. And you're going to have people in your homes who don't know the Lord. And you don't want to be tactless or insensitive, but at the same time, eternity hangs in the balance of people hearing the word. So, I'm just going to end with this. I was, I've been mulling this over this last week. This has kind of gone viral in the Christian community. Many of you have read this. Um, it's been reposted by a number of preachers. I, I was compelled to repost it on our, our Facebook site, but there's this pastor in China by the name of uh, Wang Yi. And um, last week, Advent number two, Advent of Peace. He and a hundred of his prisoners were rounded up and arrested in China, right? And if you read this guy's letter, because he wrote a letter prior to being arrested, as if he expected to be arrested, and he wanted to have some kind of a public witness um, as to why he disobeys the government. And if, if you read it, and I think you should read it, you realize this guy is rooted, like, he's not just somebody who heard the gospel and responded but has no, like, deep roots into who Jesus is. You can tell by his writing, this guy knows the Bible. And he is in trouble, not because he was living like a Christian. He's in trouble because he spoke like a Christian. And this is what he writes, and I, and I love this. And I just wanted you to draw or your attention to the word tell. This is the concluding of this message. He says, in the middle of this thing, he says, I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. He's got courage. And even in his letter, he's like, man, when I'm incarcerated and I'm taken, I pray that God may use me to tell, to speak even in the face of those who can put you in prison. And he and his wife are both, I haven't heard whether they've been released, but he and his wife and his parishioners. I'm just like, man, we could use a little bit more of that. Maybe a lot more of that. 
And so I have to tell you, church, this, this season, don't be sensitive, be intentional, be prayerful. But let's do our best to be verbal too, okay? The only way a person can truly know about ultimate reality is by being introduced to the only person who knows everything outside the fishbowl and everything inside the fishbowl and allowing his word to do its work. Amen. Lord, I pray this Christmas as our gatherings are a mixture of belief and unbelief that you would grant us tremendous humility and sensitivity and tactfulness and yet intentionality of wanting and desiring to speak a single word about you. Um, as the one who knows all reality and has come to show us and to give us life. Amen.